0: Hello and welcome to episode number 231 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books and with me today is author Teresa Romain. We are going to talk about her current historical romance series, one which was inspired by The Tollgate by Georgette Hare and the other that was inspired by, well, writing historical romances for all the horse-mad little girls who grew up to be romance readers. I know there are at least nine or ten of you out there. We also talk about what she's reading, her very thorough knowledge of a specific silent film star, and the books that continue to inspire her writing. Teresa also told me, and, and we'll mention in the beginning of this episode, that being on the podcast was apparently on her bucket list, so I am really excited to share this episode with you because it was really fun to record. I also want to tell you who is sponsoring this episode because it's also pretty cool. This episode is being sponsored by Kensington Publishing, and they would like you to know about All In by Simona Arnstedt. As the first Swedish romance ever to be translated to, into and published in English, the best selling novel All In by Simona Arnstedt is a refreshing twist on the billionaire playboy trope, exhibits strong female characters, a lovingly painted version of the idyllic Swedish summer, and an unput downable plot that will appeal to every romance reader. Critically lauded by Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Kirkus Reviews, Library Journal, Book Page, Book Riot, in Touch, and best of all, by this website, Smart Bitches Trashy Books. I want you all to know I do not write these. This is, this is all Kensington, so thank you, Kensington. All In by Simona Arnstead is now beautifully repackaged in a trade paperback just in time for Valentine's Day as a perfect gift for a friend, or better yet, for yourself. Now available wherever books are sold and on kensingtonbooks.com. I love a sponsorship ad that encourages you to buy presents for yourself. That is just awesome. So thank you, Kensington, for sponsoring this episode. And while we're on the subject of being nice, I have two compliments. And if you are wondering what is happening, I will explain in just a moment. To Adam F., this may sound a little strange, but many people you know turn to you for advice and ideas because your brain is among the best brains ever. And to Jason M., you make life more fun and you make difficult things appear effortless and entertaining. If you were a meme on the internet, you would easily be the most popular and the one that caused the most laughter in inappropriate places. Now, if you're wondering, what am I doing? This is weird. We have a podcast Patreon, and if you are a new listener or you haven't heard me mention this before, I'm going to tell you all about it. If you go to patreon.com slash smartbitches, you can help support the show, keep the podcast awesomeness as awesome as it can possibly be. And help me support the show's transcripting, transcriptioning, transcribing, that's probably the right word, for all of the episodes that don't yet have a transcript. You can have a look at patreon.com slash and I very much appreciate it that you do. The music in this episode was provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is, and I will have links to all of the books that we mention, plus links to the different places on the internet that we talk about. All in the podcast entry at trashybooks.com slash podcast. And now, without any further delay, and with all of the heartfelt compliments, on with the podcast. I'm not sure if I told you this is audio only, because if I use video, sometimes I get crappy uh, audio quality. So um, if I forgot to tell you, and you went and put mascara on, I'm really sorry.
1: (laughs) I did not but I did put on my Reading Rainbow shirt, which seemed uh, appropriate for, you know, talking about books. You have a Reading Rainbow shirt? That's awesome. I I do. I'll send you a picture. I got it. um, It's the one thing I've ever ever bought from one of Twitter's promoted tweets. LeVar (laughs) Burton was doing some kind of a special thing. And you know, you see LeVar Burton in your timeline and you're like, I'll do whatever you say.
0: Oh, yeah. I totally almost knocked him over with my purse and then had to chase him down and apologize because it's LeVar Burton.
1: Oh, yeah. like, And because it's LeVar Bur- Burton, I bet he was totally cool with it.
0: Oh, and... he was super – he's the most chill person I've probably ever met. I guess reading all of those books and also being on Star Trek just imbues you with a certain amount of chill. I think that would
1: do it, yeah.
0: Okay, so here's the only awkward part. Okay. If you would please introduce yourself and tell the people who will be listening who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, well, thank you for having me on the podcast, Sarah. Um, As I mentioned when you emailed me about this, this has been on my bucket list of really cool things to do. So, yay, (laughs) I'm really glad to be here. I'm really honored to be on someone's bucket list. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm Teresa Romaine, and I write historical romances, uh, mostly set during the Regency, and I have a Reading Rainbow shirt and a husband and a daughter and no pets, so I'm afraid we're not going to hear any cute little animal noises during this podcast.
0: Well, you'll hear some animal noises, but they'll all be on my end. We, oh. just, we just had a small amount of digging a hole in the carpet, which happens every time I start recording. And, you know, if we're really lucky, the UPS guy will show up. Maybe a squirrel will um, breach the perimeter. You never know. But all the animal noises, I've totally got that covered. All right. You have a new series going on right now, right? You have a series in progress.
1: Yes. I actually have two series that are in the works right now because I'm writing for two different publishers.
0: Oh, that's fun. It must be a little brain heavy to manage two timelines and two sets of characters and two worlds in your brain at the same time.
1: Not to mention two sets of deadlines.
0: Oh yeah, those two. So tell yeah. me about
1: your series. Series Okay. Well the um the first one I'll tell you about is the one with the next book coming out. Um, that's called The Royal Rewards and I got the idea reading Georgette Hare's The Tollgate, which has Uh, the theft of some coins that hadn't been released into circulation and so the people couldn't spend them but uh, it was just a local affair and so I thought what if this thing really blew up Mm. so I pitched it to my editor as Regency it's a mad 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 world where um, 50,000 gold sovereigns were stolen from the royal mint and everyone in England is looking for them in order to claim a reward. And if you find it, you know, if you find the coins before the day that they're officially supposed to be released, then you are a hero to the country and you get a bunch of money. So that's the world in which this series takes place. And the second book is called Passion Favors the Bold. And the characters are connected with those from the first book. It's the sister of the hero of the first book and the best friend of the hero of the first book. So what we have here is a best friend's little sister romance.
0: Oh, 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 yes, I'm listening.
1: Yeah, I had never written one of those before, and it's been a really fun dynamic because you get to play with um, that sort of exasperation that people have with each other when they know each other really well. Yes. But also this <laughs> this dawning attraction that they have as they come to see each other in new ways. Like, wow, look how talented you are at scamming people. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a useful skill.
0: Plus you have, you have the attention of, I know you really, really well. So I see through all your bull and yeah. I know when you're being ridiculous and when you're acting, but then when you start to become attracted to somebody, you see them and you see parts of them that you didn't know about. So it's seeing all of this new stuff in someone, you know, really, really well, which is in itself a, a, a
1: attention. Yes. Yes. I love that in romance. I mean, romance has got to be the most character-driven genre that there is, and that's what I love about it. Oh yeah. Cuz it's like as the as the reader and as the writer, you're getting to know these people as they're getting to know each other. And so, you know, as I read or as I write, I'm like, "Ooh, what are you going to do next?"
0: <laughs> so, do you know sort of the general plot of The Mystery of Who Stole What with
1: Coins? and then the characters develop as you write them? Uh, When I get into a series, I usually know more about the characters than the plot in later books, because in the first book, I'm establishing a lot of that, and the characters in later books are often present in the first book. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of this series, they were off screen, but communicating by letter. And... So I knew what the dynamic between the hero and the heroine would be, and I don't know if I should admit this if my editor is listening, but basically I wrote the first book, and then I was like, okay, well, these will be the characters in the second book, and I'll figure out later how they fit into the plot of the first one. there are some overlapping events that I had to make sure that I included right. in the right. second book because I'd written about them in the first book. And so I was sometimes cursing past Teresa for <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated for present Teresa. Yeah. That,
0: I can imagine that happening when you have interconnected worlds and interconnected characters that are following a specific
1: timeline. Right. Right. I was literally writing down um, date Day of the week, you know, I had out my, my 1800s calendar. (laughs) This is, uh, this is so bad. Like what year did this take place? 1817. So I had an 1817 calendar and, you know, you can find these wonderful things online that tell you phases of the moon at that particular date. And so if you need a full moon, all right, then you are going to be here on June 21st whatever. Uh, It's possible to be really specific. And I needed that for this particular book. Right. Because if you're heisting
0: and, and, and doing, you know, skullduggery and daring do, you need to know how light it's going to be and what chances there are of them being seen.
1: Right. Or in real life, all of these gold sovereigns were released on, um, I want to say July 1st, right? 17. And so in my, Uh, imaginary world, they had to be found before then or the whole deal was off because they could just be spent as regular coins. Right.
0: And they would have no special value.
1: Right. Right. They wouldn't be obvious then as stolen goods. And so the reward would be called off. So that's um, a very definite endpoint to the timeline that I had to keep in mind as I was writing.
0: So do you often... Uh, align your stories and your historical worlds closely to the reality of the time or as close as
1: you can get it? I definitely try not to do anything counter to the real life events. Sometimes I have to fudge a little bit like this famous person wouldn't have been present at such and such a party but everybody recognizes the name of the Prince Regent, for example. So there he said it. But as far as historical events, I think it's actually really helpful to me as a writer to use those as a jumping off point for plot. Yeah. Like in my um, most recent novella I published, um, it was called My Scandalous Duke, and it takes place in 1801, just after Ireland was unified with Great Britain. So for the first time we have a United Kingdom, Mm That is part of the plot because some people are reacting to it in very different ways. Politics is politics, no matter the century. It is, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it and, it's, and it's interesting because as a historical writer, you're going to write both history and fantasy in a, in a way. You're making stuff up, but you're holding it very close to a specific set of rules in a specific society. And with with the plots that you're working with, specific dates and then you have to build on top of that.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. But first and foremost is is the characters, just like in any other kind of romance. If you don't want to spend time with these people, then the deal's off. So I have to find a way to make the characters historically accurate and also delightful. Yes. You keep turning the pages.
0: You also write a series that is I think romance for any little girl who was horse mad who grew up to be a romance reader? Ha ha ha. That
1: would be me. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> and many other people. I know Redheaded Girls, a huge fan of this series. What inspired you to write horse romances? Because you were a horse mad little girl who grew up to be a
1: romance writer? Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, in in hindsight, it seems like it should be that and it should be so obvious, but it was actually a suggestion from my agent uh we were talking about ideas for a new series and i think i had um talked about horses and i had this post up on my blog from a long time ago about um just details about horses that might turn up in romance novels mm-hmm. and uh somehow she put the pieces together and said you know this could be really fun for you and she, <laughs> she was right uh horse racing is not something that i knew anything about at least in 1800s england right if you've read the black stallion books which i'm sure redheaded girl has done and a, a lot of other horse mad little girls um then you get a taste of how it was in the middle of the 20th century in the u.s but it was completely different in England and they still have different traditions. And so I still had to do a lot of research. And um, one thing that was a really cool help to the research was looking at paintings oh. that had been done because they'll show you how jockeys sat at the time and what their silks looked like. They show you what the saddle looked like. The horses all had dock tails. Uh, the railing of the race course looks like this, mm-hmm. so using art from the time was really helpful to give me a visual sense of what it might have looked like.
0: One of my dogs highly uh, has many suggestions about what the dogs <laughs> of the of the of the uh, series should look like. Hush, my gosh. He's lying. Oh. He's lying in a sunbeam after having dug a hole in the carpet, but now he's barking. Can you be quiet now? Thank you. So when you started writing this, was there like a whole part of you that was like, yes,
1: this is the best thing ever? It was like rediscovering that horse crazy little girl I have. <laughs> uh, I still have all of my Walter Farley and Marguerite Henry books from yeah. when I was a kid. And so I got them out of my office closet and was just going through them like, oh. I love these so much. And I have this huge coffee table book called The Noble Horse that some amazing relative gave to me when I was probably eight or nine years old. It had to be my grandparents because who else would indulge an eight or nine year old kid with a coffee table book about horses? Yeah, that's that's totally a grandparents gift. (laughs) (laughs) And so I still have that too. And I could look through it like Um, just for reference to what is the term for this particular joint, Um, you know, the technical stuff that I didn't necessarily remember as much as horsies. (laughs) All under one, like, large heading, horsies. Yes.
0: (laughs) So tell me about that series. How did you translate the horse-mad, coffee-table book-loving little girl into a romance series? Uh,
1: That series is called Romance of the Turf, and it starts with a novella in which the heroine is a grown-up, horse-mad little girl. The ongoing thread through the series is the Chandler family, which has four grown offspring, so it's their love stories. And the youngest sibling, Hannah Chandler, is probably the most horse crazy of all of them. She's a wonderful rider. She knows just a lot about how to treat horses, calm horses. She knows a lot about the race course, even though, of course, she can't be uh, a part of races herself because yeah. she's wonderful. Although there there was a woman jockey during the Regency, and I probably shouldn't have said that because now I won't even be able to remember her name, <laughs> <laughs> but there was one, it wasn't a completely closed world, but mostly, you know, mostly yeah. it, was, it was a man's thing, and so she did whatever she could to advance her family's interest in the racing world while still being a proper young lady. Of course.
0: So when, when you were writing this series, you have the typical uh, historical tension of men are allowed in these areas and women are not permitted in these areas. Was it considered unladylike for her to be super interested in horse racing? Is that very much a inappropriate boundary or is that sort of a, there's not a lot of women around here and we don't really know what to do with you, so maybe you should leave kind of boundary?
1: No, I don't think it would have been historically inaccurate or or particularly scandalous for a woman to be interested in horse racing, I mean, horses were the cars and the dogs of the time. Like they were (laughs) were your pet, your, your companion and your amusement. And so everybody was around horses all the time and everybody went to see the races. You know, that wasn't just limited to uh, one social class. You had uh, different areas of the track where you could get a more expensive ticket or where you just crowded in there with the other people who had the cheap seats, so to speak. But it was very much a big social event. Like um, we would think of a a music festival today. Right. It was like like Regency Woodstock, but over and over again. (laughs) Regency
0: Lilith Fair with horses, only mostly men. Yeah. No, no, no. Regency Coachella. <laughs> Somebody listening right now is like, I want to read that series. Has someone written that series? I would like to read that series.
1: <laughs> I would read that series.
0: Right? Seriously. So are you, when is the next book in that series coming out?
1: The next one will be out this July. And that is the second novel in the series. It's called Scandalous Ever After. And it tells the story of the second oldest sibling, who is uh, a twin, a fraternal twin to the oldest one, mm-hmm. their brother and sister. And so they have that delightful butting of heads near the beginning of this book as the heroine, who's a widow whose husband left her with fabulous debt in Ireland uh, on their Irish estate. She comes home to Newmarket to try to get some help from her family. And while she's there, she meets her late husband's best friend of whom she's seen zilch since the day he
0: died. Right. So he's kind of a crappy friend or she thinks he is.
1: So she thinks, but at the same time, she's really glad to see him because when you had a beloved familiar face for so long, there's a part of you that's going to be like, Oh, it's you. Right. Correct. And then you remember that you're supposed to be mad.
0: Right. It's a it's a strange mix of longing for society and longing for connection but also wanting anger, to Right, and wanting to punch him hard <laughs> in sensitive places. Yes. So, have you always wanted to write historical romance?
1: No, it was looking back it it was not inevitable at all. You know how some kids write stories Just for fun, like, I made a book, Mommy, and the mom has to staple the pages together and all that. My sister made so many of those books, and so she's not quite two years older than me, and Mm so to me, she was perfect, and I wanted to do everything she did. So I would get paper, and then I'd stare at it, like, I don't know what to write about, and then I'd usually wind up drawing horses all over it and not (laughs) having a story at all. So it really, um, it it surprised me how much I loved writing when I was in history grad school and I was writing so much nonfiction, I actually turned my master's thesis into a nonfiction book. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my first book was nonfiction. It's a biography of a silent film actress. Oh, what's it called? It's called Margarita Fisher, A Biography of a Silent Film Star. That's really cool. Oh, thanks. It was a lot of fun. That was one of those serendipity situations where uh, I was in the special collections department of my university library. I did an internship there. And of course, the thing everybody asks you when you're a grad student is, what are you doing your thesis on? Right. And my answer was always, I don't know. I don't quite have to figure that out yet, do I? <laughs> but ideally, I'd love to do something with silent film, because I'm just fascinated by it. And looking back, I I enjoyed it as entertainment, but I also enjoyed it as a historical document. There's a part of me that could, you know, watch a film made in 1925 and think, look at the street then, look what people were wearing In 1925, look what movie directors wanted people to think was fashionable. Right. The the social aspects of it were so interesting to me, and so it happened that the silent film star Margarita Fisher had deposited her papers with the Special Collections Department and no one had worked with them before. Oh, I know, I just, I stepped right into that and it was wonderful. And when I was done writing that book, I really missed writing. And this is when my husband, if he was here, he would give you the one eyebrow up look like this person is so type A, because you can't just come home from work and watch episodes of House until bedtime, right? No, no, no. You have to be working on some big project. Right. So we did actually then have our daughter, which is a pretty big project, but... I missed writing and I didn't have another nonfiction idea in mind. So I thought, well, historical romance is what I always read for fun. I wonder if I could write one of those because I love history and details. Researching, yeah. And before I was in grad school, I um, got degrees in psychology and English. So it's like, hello, digging into character and playing with language. These are all things that I love. That being said, my first attempt at writing a historical romance probably read, like, an academic nonfiction book. It's definitely not the same kind of writing. And I think I'm not alone among writers in feeling like I always could be improving at the kind of writing that I do and that I want to do.
0: Oh, I totally understand that. I tried to write a historical romance a very long time ago about steeplechase. Horse You're racing. Kidding. Yeah. Well, I I was actually still never. Do I still have it? Yeah. Probably somewhere like three hard drives ago. I, I. What I remember was. Gosh, this was. Way the hell back when I was thinking I. I joined RWA thinking I was going to be a romance writer and then um, found that my nonfiction writing muscles are much better and my reviewing muscles are much stronger than my fiction writing muscles because I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but writing fiction is, like, really fucking hard. I don't it's know if you're aware. It's really
1: different from writing nonfiction. It's
0: very different. Um, but I wanted to write a romance. I was never horse mad, but I was friends with all the horse mad people in elementary school, so that <laughs> kind of rubbed off.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, I had this one friend who was really good at drawing horses, and I could have watched her draw hooves and ankles and horse ears for like days she was so good at it and it's not a skill I have but I wanted to write one about how um steeplechase if I'm remembering my history correctly which I'm probably not was replacing fox hunting because fox hunting was often pretty messy and cruel when the fox actually got caught it was kind of gross I imagine this character having some sort of moral objection to fox hunting because ew gross dead animal parts everywhere and engaging with steeple chasing, which was at the time, if I, again, if I'm remembering correctly, literally racing from one one steeple to the next visible steeple
1: to see mm-hmm. who could get
0: there first, um, and it was terrible. And I, pro- if I dug it up, I would probably cringe. Like it's not even enjoyable in a bad way. It's just going to be bad. <laughs> oh, but you know, I think that. I think that you're right. I always think about improving my own writing and I'm always trying to think of what's the next thing that I can do that is both interesting and engaging and helps connect romance readers to each other. Cause that's like my job. That's how I see my job. It, yeah. You're never fully satisfied with what you can write and it's, it's both really great and really frustrating.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. And so as I go through each book, well, you know you've written a book and so you know there are all these different stages like you get it back from the editor with revisions mm-hmm. and then you have copy edits yep. and if if it's coming out in print then you have page proofs as well and yep. at each stage i read through and i'm like correct correct yep clumsy, clumsy. and i curse past Teresa again for letting the <laughs> stupidities get through into the text they probably bother me more than anyone else at least i hope so but then once the book is through the page proof stage, I can never read it again because I don't have the chance to change it anymore. Yep. And so I just don't even want to know. Oh, yeah. There's a couple
0: errors in in the books that I've published where I'm like, I, I just want to fix this one thing. Like, I joke about going to somebody's house like, hi, hey, listen, you don't know me. I, I know you brought, bought my book. Um, can I have like two minutes with it? I just have a pen. I want to correct something real quick. I'll be out of your hair in 30 seconds
1: you are so funny and you know I have I have your books your two nonfiction ones oh thank Uh, you uh, well I first met you in person at RWA in 2014 and I had brought Beyond Heaving Bosoms so you could sign it for me yes I do remember and I gave you like 75 hugs apologies it was like you don't have to apologize it's totally fine (laughs) it was just so great to meet you oh
0: thank you I, um, I still have that desire to correct errors though. <laughs> it's not going away.
1: <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. And, and being on the other side, I can say that reading the books, I never noticed it.
0: Yep. So. Oh yeah. You're only going to notice your own errors. If some, if, if, if someone notices an error that I hadn't noticed, I'm like, oh, well, um, clearly that error was meant to be because my brain missed it entirely. But the ones I know about and can't correct, those will make you nuts. Yep. So yep. what was the first thing that you wrote that was fiction after writing nonfiction? And are you going to uh are you gonna write historical romance about silent film stars? Please?
1: Uh please <laughs> I I will never say never because I'd love to. Uh it's not what I'm under contract for right now, but I'm seeing more and more historical fiction set during the teens and the jazz age, and I love it. Oh, yeah, me too. A time of such quick social change. I think you can have some fascinating characters. You can have um, more diversity of characters than we usually see in uh, Regency England. Not that we couldn't see them in Regency England, but uh, like, I'm reading right now um, Alyssa Cole's novella in the Daughters of a Nation anthology. Oh, that novella it, is so good. Ah! Uh, I, I started it late last night, which was foolish, because I should know that if you start reading something by Alyssa Cole, you are going to be making a, a bad book decision. Is that the book club? The bad... I, I am now a member, again, of the Bad Decisions Book Club. Bad Decisions Book Club, I'm in that club, too. Yeah, but it's set in Harlem in 1917, and the heroine owns a jazz club, and the hero shows up as her dishwasher. He's an emigrant from India who has um, just you know, worked his way around the world doing one thing or another in pursuit of social justice. And so even at this point in the novella, when they're kind of uh, hating each other, because they don't trust each other, you can see that they have the same desire to change their world, really, you know, no big deal, change the world. But uh, I love seeing that because I haven't read a story like that before. And of course, if Alyssa Cole's writing it, it's going to be beautiful, and the characters are going to seem real, and you want to spend more and more time with them, and you wish it wasn't a novella. Yeah, been there, been there.
0: So, what? Um, had a, where's my questions? Where'd my questions
1: go? Oh, okay. okay. Ask me what was the what happened to that first historical romance?
0: Yes, and uh, please write silent film stars. <laughs>
1: I would love to and uh, I hope that it will be able to happen someday because I have some ideas that I think would be really fun to write and research. You know, the research is so fun because you get to look at all of these wonderful historical documents, some of which were the pop culture of the time. So watching silent movies is research. Who wouldn't love that? Oh, yeah, totally. Actually, Tell you who wouldn't love that. My husband wouldn't love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not his thing. Not
0: his thing. Has he but read?
1: Has he read any of your books? Yes, he is one of my first readers. Always. Aww. Because uh, he can give me the man perspective. Like I have a critique partner who is also a writer, and so she, um, when she reads my chapters, she tells me well, I'm not following this or this story um, element is working for me and I I get how the characters are progressing toward the black moment, et cetera, et cetera. And then when my husband reads it, he can be like, a man would never say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure where this plot point is going because he doesn't read other romance really, but he has read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. So he has a good feel for how uh, genre fiction should keep you engrossed and keep pulling you along. Yes. And so, if I lose him as a reader, then I know there's something I need to change.
0: Right, and there's a uh, plot differences that you need to figure out. Or because the a lot of the time the beats are very similar. Yes, that things change and develop at a similar rhythm in most genre fiction. And and even if you know fantasy or sci fi isn't my thing, if I read one, I Expect the turns at specific points
1: right right you 're expecting some kind of a an emotional or literal journey and exactly characters change and then everything falls apart near the end, and then they figure it out exactly exactly
0: yes that it, 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 there 's a lot of overlap which which is why I always get frustrated when when a, a reader or, or a writer of another genre trashes one of the other areas of genre fiction i'm like you, you you're just why why would you hate on your cousin like that like wh- come on stop
1: that's a good way to put it yeah like why Cause... why are you
0: dissing your family don't you know that's a bad idea it's kind of a bad idea i mean come
1: on, mystery where would you be without the dead bodies and the detective right come on, Legit. Or where would you be without the blood yeah yeah we are all cousins we, we are very to... we're
0: definitely cousins so what are the books that you most admire as a writer? Which are the books that you that you sort of look at and go, oh, I wish I could write something like that. That's incredible.
1: Oh, my goodness. I remember the first time that happened to me. Well, the first time that happened to me as a reader, just totally falling in love with a book, uh, with a romance, was... Romancing Mr. Bridgerton by Julia Quinn. Oh, that's a lovely book. It's so lovely and I didn't know where it fit into the Bridgerton series. So, uh that's the book where you find out who Lady Whistledown is. <laughs> well,
0: that so, was uh starting surprise. with a spoiler, <laughs> eh?
1: <laughs> surprise. But just I I had read some Uh, romances just idly before but that was the one that hooked me because I saw how real the characters could seem and and just how real life their problems could be you know who hasn't felt like they don't fit in or who hasn't felt like they can't live up to uh, an older relative's expectations Mm -hmm. so it was just is just so relatable so then it was I was gone like historical romance, be my BFF. <laughs> um, and then uh, another author who did that to me was Courtney Milan. Uh, I met her on the Eloisa James, Julia Quinn bulletin board that they had in the late aughts. That was a long was time to- ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah That was a cl- long time ago. They closed it in 2010. Um, and I I want to say Courtney's first book came out in October of 09 and it was a novella in a collection with um Mary Bellog and Nicola Cornick yes I remember the cover it was a woman standing in a dress
0: holding a wreath behind her back yeah yeah I remember the cover very clearly no idea why but I have seen that same stock image used like six different times with five different color dresses. But I remember it really well. Anyway, Sarah's well, random brain details aside, go on.
1: It's good for holiday historical romance. Totally. Uh, that was another one that just, um, it really went beyond what I was expecting. You know, I, ex- I expected to enjoy this story. I did not expect to have my ass emotionally kicked all over the world <laughs> um, wow that was that was uh articulate but you know it, it was uh lower class characters or I should say working class like these are people who are just getting by they're working hard and their world seems so real but the um problems that they had to overcome were really different from I'm a duke who can't figure out where to put all my gold kind of problem.
0: I'm a duke. I can't figure out where to put all my gold. There's a
1: lot of those running around. (laughs) Yeah. Poor dukes. I know. Duke problems, man.
0: (laughs) It's tough.
1: Tough to be a duke.
0: It is. It's so difficult. Poor things. So those are the books that you look at and you're like, okay, this is incredible. If I could write like this, it would be amazing.
1: Yes. And then another one that got me like that was, and I shouldn't say like pretty much everything Courtney Milan has written since I just want to roll around in it. You know?
0: (laughs) I know that exact feeling. I'm reading a book right now last night. I was like, could I maybe be excused from um, parenting, cleaning, bathing, and eating for a little while because I just want to roll around in this book?
1: <laughs> what is it? Oh, can um,
0: you say? Oh yeah, totally. It's, I have a I have a legit arc and everything. It's coming out in February, so it's not even that far away. Um, so I really loved Lucy Parker's
1: Act Like Act it. Like It. So do you have her second book. I
0: do. Uh! It's called Pretty Face. I have it on pre-order and I want it so much. Um, it's so good so far. It, it deals with a lot of the same sort of familiar things as Act Like It, where you have two people who have an impression of one another and then discover the reality, but the tension between the hero and heroine is really intense. The heroine is sort of... Um, imagine Marilyn Monroe, but in the 21st century, and extremely talented... Uh, Cast in a sort of a soap opera evening primetime program where she's a floozy who sleeps with everyone's husband and is the, or the sort of the sexual antagonist of the show. And so everyone assumes that she is exactly the same. Her father is a famous person. Her stepmother is a famous person. She's the daughter of the woman that her father had an affair with while he was married to the woman he's still married with. So she has this family that isn't really very supportive She's actually very smart and very talented, but she's been sort of typecast by this role she's playing on this, on this program. Um, And the hero is a theater director and uh, owner of a, of a famous theater that he's inherited and is trying to both restore and put a new play on at the same time. He's older than she is. He takes a chance on hiring her for a play that is all about three Queens. So it's three women leading the play. Um, And So she works for him. He's older than she is. She is already accused of being the type of person who sleeps around even though she's not. And Mm -hmm. her mother is a famous, pretty famous entertainer who uses her sexual relationships to get ahead professionally. And a lot of people do. Um, So she's caught herself in the exact same situation she swore she would never get into. And is at the same time incredibly drawn to this person and it's like okay you know how there's romantic tension that's based on an instantaneous sort of recognition
1: mm-hmm.
0: like i recognize this person as someone who's perfect for me and there's all these reasons why they should not and cannot interact together and yet they have a really hard time and it's not like they want to tear each other's clothes off they just want to be close together like it's not even yeah. super super um sexual tension it's just they're really drawn to each other in a powerful way. And there's all of these obstacles in front of them. And there's also really good grovel. Such good grovel. Oh, my God. Oh, it's so good. So, yes, this book, just such good tension and romance. And I haven't finished it yet. So if it holds up to the end, I'm going to be a really happy person. Plus, it's, it's that world where you're in the London theater community. So you're, mm-hmm. you're in that world while you read the book. When they start working in the actual theater, it's going to be awesome. I'm super excited. So so Courtney Milan writes the books that you want to roll around in.
1: Yes. And Sherry Thomas. When I read Not Quite a Husband, it just gutted me. And I made my husband read that one because it's sort of like an adventure novel. It is. It just happens to have all this really sexy stuff in it. So, you know, what man is going to argue with that? Right. And he loved it.
0: He loved it. So here's the question the one you were dreading, here it comes. Okay. What are you reading that you recommend? <laughs>
1: all right, I'm so glad I wrote stuff down. Well, uh, I already mentioned that I'm reading Daughters of a Nation. Alyssa uh, Cole's novella is the last one, but I started with it because I love her. Um, but I'm going to read all of the other ones because I just, um, I want to. I think it's, it's such a cool idea for an anthology. Something else that I just finished reading is a nonfiction book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And it's about she's calling um, the combination of having passion and persistence, grit, like you're going to stick with it, even if it's difficult, because it really is meaningful to you. And so it's a book about um, just how we see that in. Uh, real life, how you can develop it if you um, choose to, from the inside out, or how you can use people around you, um, people who are you know really skilled or um, really dedicated to a certain cause, use the gritty resources around you to help you develop it in yourself more. And I I think I was mostly interested in it as a parent because my daughter um, just did her school spelling bee. She won her classroom spelling bee, and so then she was gonna be in the school spelling bee, and she really wanted to do well. So she had this list of hundreds of words. She wanted to study, except she didn't sometimes wanna study. And so we would say, well, how important is it to you to do well in the spelling bee? I really want to do well okay, well, the person who wins the spelling bee is going to be the person who studied the most because nobody knows all these words without studying. And so that was one example where I think she really did show some grit because she she studied and studied, and she wound up coming in third in her school. That's fantastic. Way to go. Yeah. I mean, she's just a third grader, and she was up against these big fifth graders. So she did well because she had studied hard and so i probably uh drove that point home uh with no subtlety at all like <laughs> look what you did with all your hard work because she's she's a really imaginative kid i i won't say flaky but you know kind of like squirrel idea mhm be fun and so just um how I can help her stick with things more. Yes. And probably, probably um, I noticed that in her because I, I have that quality too, where I can be easily distracted. And so I made a lot of notes in that book. It took a lot of notes. It's a library book. I didn't write in a library book. I just, I took a lot of notes.
0: Oh, I do that. I know exactly what you mean. I have two children, one in middle school, one in elementary school. And They're both taking musical instruments, but the older you get, the more often you have musical instruments. So my older son has band five days a week. So he has band and then practice every day. And he's just, it's just sort of a thing that he does every day. Um, But because he practices for 15, 20, 30 minutes every day, he's developing muscle memory. So he remembers what his body has to do to make the certain notes in the right order. And he's motivated by sounding good. And then he starts playing stuff by ear because he's figured out, you know, these two notes are also in the Star Wars theme. Let me figure out the rest of it. So he's really good at it. But my younger son has music once a week and is supposed to practice every day. He's most inspired by competing with his brother, not by the fact that by <laughs> when you practice every day, your <laughs> teacher is impressed with your progress. But I've had to point out to both of them, if you want to sound better on the instrument, you have to put a little bit of effort in every day. You can't just show up one day and then learn all of the things you need to know about this instrument. That's not how playing an instrument works. You don't just show up, figure it all out, and you're done. You have to do a little bit every day. And that... That really does require determination and passion about something Mm -hmm. and persistence
1: yeah I'm I'm guessing they like playing the instruments because if you just plain old don't enjoy it oh yeah you're not gonna want to do it right right you're not gonna have that
0: grittiness so anyway back to you rambling Sarah (laughs) books that you're reading
1: any others Um... that you want to mention uh, one that I read a little a little while back, but I do want to mention it because I loved it. Was so for real by Rebecca Weatherspoon, and I I found her writing through Dubwaha. Yep, because her the first novella in that novella trilogy was a novella finalist. Yes, and the cover is so beautiful. It's got candy on it, and yeah, who I doesn't have... want to pick that up? Right, is it big ass lollipop? <laughs> And the second one has what looks like a sundae made of cotton candy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It just, I I want it. Um, but the characters are so, they're so funny and they're so good to each other. Like, these are people who really want an adult relationship. And whenever something comes up, they figure it out. And it's just delightful. To... <laughs> I love I loved reading about those people. And of course it's it's very sexy too. Um, so you see them figuring stuff out and then they have all this hot sex and it's like, wow, look at you guys. What a cool relationship.
0: <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's an honesty and a frankness too. Yes. They're, they're yep. very upfront about a lot of things that I think in, in other narratives are often coded or not discussed frankly. And I liked it because that's often how I talk with people about things that generally people don't discuss. This is, I think this actually happens a lot with romance writers and readers, because we're constantly reading about emotions and intimacy and sexuality. We just talk about those things, whereas like I'll be talking to other people and I'll think, oh, I have to watch what I say. These aren't romance people. <laughs> I can't talk about throbbing and heaving and things like that here, not even as a joke. <laughs>
1: whereas to us, there's, there's no such thing as not safe for work. right? everything's not
0: safe for work. So everything is safe for work. Exactly. <laughs> and that is all for this week's episode. I want to thank Teresa Romain for hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I also want to thank Kensington because they have something they would like me to tell you. And I'm going to tell you right now. As the first Swedish romance ever to be translated into and published in English, the best selling novel All In by Simona Arnstedt is a refreshing twist on the billionaire Playboy trope, exhibits strong female characters, a lovingly painted vision of the idyllic Swedish summer, and an unputdownable plot that will appeal to every romance reader. Critically lauded by Are You Ready? Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Kirkus Reviews, Library Journal, Book Page, Book Riot, In Touch, and best of all by this website, Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Thank you, Kensington. All In by Simona Arnstead is now beautifully repackaged in trade paperback just in time for Valentine's Day as a perfect gift for a friend or better yet, for yourself. Now available wherever books are sold and on kensingtonbooks.com. Now, if you head on over to the podcast entry at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, you will not only see this book and the pretty new cover, but you'll also see links to all the books we talked about in this episode. And if you are an iTunes... An iTunes user I think there needs to be a good name for that if you are an I user not that you use the letter I but that you actually use the Apple store we have an iTunes page iTunes.com slash DBSA we've got old episodes new episodes all the books we link to or talk about and a pretty cool individual archive that shows you links to everything in the iUniverse. Should you be an iUser, iBooks iTunes user. There's a name for that, right? I, it's like right on the edge of my brain. Anyway, iTunes.com slash DBSA. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. This is Room 215 by Pete Bog Fairies from their album Dust. You can find all things Pete Bog at their website, at Amazon, and on iTunes. I also want to make sure to mention again our Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash smartbitches. For pledges of as little as a dollar or $3 a month, you can help make an enormous difference supporting the show. And there are different rewards for different pledges that are kind of fun too. So please check it out, patreon.com slash smartbitches. Next week, I will have a long interview that is super fun with guests that we've featured before. And future episodes will be me, probably a lot of other people talking about romance because that's what we do here. It's fun. But on behalf of me, all of the animals, Teresa Romaine, and all of us here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend.